Hi, this is the official podcast of Riverside International Church in Lisbon. Riverside is an international, contemporary, caring, and Christ-centered community. Our vision is to significantly impact the country of Portugal and the regions beyond with the gospel. Thank you for listening to us, and we hope that your life will be impacted by these teachings. God bless. Good morning. Thank you to the worship team. Can we just appreciate the worship team for serving? Not necessarily appreciating the amazing sound, uh, but appreciating their dedication. They're here on a Thursday. They're practicing. They're here earlier than most of us practicing so that they can lead us into the presence of God so that we can give God our best. And I'm really grateful for them and grateful for their hearts. Um, but this morning, we're going to carry on and um, continue on in our message series called God is Stranger. Now, before I begin, I want to say that this series is uh, based on a book called God is Stranger. The author of this book is called Dr. Krish Kendaya. And I met Dr. Krish Kendaya in a conference in Chicago in the summer. And uh, I was holding his book, God is Stranger, and he came up to me and started speaking to me about his book. And just a really amazing guy. He advocates for foster care and um, in our welcome to refugees in the UK. And so I, I'm speaking to him and just had a great conversation. And I arrived back in Portugal in August and I'm speaking to Ruben, my husband. And I'm saying, wow, I met this guy. His name is Dr. Krish Kendaya. He's so cool. I spoke to him for five minutes and he's just one of those people that's just so intelligent that you just want to stay with them more and talk with them more and just learn from them. And Ruben turns to me, he says, yeah, Dr. Krish Kandaya, he's the author of the book Paradoxology, the book that you really like. And I was just like, he's the author of Paradoxology? I was speaking to the author of Paradoxology? I love that, I love that book, and that book has really uh, shifted my mindset in different areas of my life, and I just couldn't believe I was talking to him, and I didn't realize it. But I don't know if this has happened to you. I don't know if you've ever been speaking to someone, and you don't realize who they are, until after the conversation. And this seems to happen to me more often than not, sometimes in more embarrassing ways than others. Um, for example, Ruben and I, uh, we officiate some weddings, more Ruben than me, but uh, we go and we do some weddings, and not often, I mean, sometimes, it's not people in our community. Sometimes it's people that live outside of Portugal and they're coming for a destination wedding, and so they contact the church and they ask, could you do our wedding? And so Ruben usually speaks with them over Skype. Sometimes I see the couple, sometimes I don't. In this particular case, I did not see the couple. And so we arrive to the wedding venue after Ruben has done their marriage pre-marriage counseling through Skype. We arrive to the wedding venue, and the wedding venue is Praia da Draga. Now, this is an amazing beach in Sintra. It's beautiful. It's just one of the most beautiful places you can have your wedding, except I would never have my wedding there because... The weather, nine times out of ten, is terrible. And so you're risking it. It's a wedding on a beach, beautiful, but it could be raining. And it turns out we arrive and it's raining. It's not nice. It's, I'm there with my summer clothes for this wedding, um, and I have my scarf around me. Ruben had to basically drag me out of the car because I didn't want to get out. And we arrive, and this guy comes up to, him, to us, and, and we start making small talk, and I start saying, yeah, it's such a beautiful place, but pity this weather sucks. And, and he's like, no, it's not that bad. And I'm like, no, it's pretty bad. I mean, I'm like wrapped in my scarf. He's like, no, but look, like the ocean is stormy and it's beautiful. And I'm just like, man, 
the weather's bad. Like, just admit the weather's bad. It's beautiful, but the weather's bad. And so then he goes away, and Ruben proceeds to tell me that that is the groom I was speaking to. And so basically, I've just been telling the groom how terrible a day his wedding day looks like. And uh, I could kill Ruben for not telling me who, who the groom was, but it happens to me many times. I'll give you one more story. So we're at the Lisbon Project, the venue before this one. Um, and Pedro and Jode were going camping with a friend, with a few friends. And their friend was coming to visit them at the project right before they go on this camping trip. And so she walks into the project, and as she's coming up the stairs, her face lights up, my face lights up. I go to her, I give her a huge hug. And Jode is kind of sitting there, kind of surprised. You, you guys know each other? And I proceed to, I put my arm around her, and I'm like, yeah, we go way back. And just as I'm about to say, yeah, we met, and I'm thinking, this is the girl I met in East Timor, a tiny island by Australia, had a wonderful connection with her, loved her, and I can't believe that now she's in Portugal and I'm seeing her at the Lisbon Project. And so I hug her really close, and I'm like, yeah, Jode, we go way back. We met in, she says, Germany. And all of a sudden I go, yeah, Germany, we met in Germany. And I'm kind of just like pretending I, I know who she is. I have no idea who this person is by now. We apparently met in Germany. But I kind of take my arm out because we are not quite the level of proximity that I thought we were. She's not the person we, that I thought she was. Because we treat people according to who we think they are. Our relationships are based on the judgments that we make about people. I lead the Lisbon Project during, during the week. That's my job. I'm the director of the Lisbon Project. We work with refugees and migrants. And in Portugal, if you're a director of anything, you're automatically a doctor. People treat you, and I am Dr. Gabriela Faria during the week. Not that I name myself that, but when we're talking and planning meetings and, and talking about partnerships with other institutions, we write emails and we talk about the content of our meetings and we're scheduling and they call me very politely, yes, Dr. Gabriela Faria, we will see you on Tuesday at 9.30 a.m. in our office. And then when I arrive, sometimes I arrive with my baby, <laughs> and I arrive and I'm clearly younger than they thought, I go from being doctor to just you. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm not even the formal type of you. Many times they just say tu, which is in, Portugal, in Portuguese, the informal way of calling you, you. Because we treat people based on their age, on our prejudices many times, the assumptions that we make about them, where they're from, the color of their skin, it all works to showing us how we treat them. And many times this is not a good thing. But what about when we do this with God? What about when we treat God according to who we think he is and who we think he is not? See, many times it turns out that we come to church and here we worship him. Here we praise him. Here we sing to him because surely God is in this place and he is almighty father and he is watching us. When the money basket goes around, we give our money because God is here in this place. The problem with that is that too often we fail to recognize God outside of church. What about when we're so busy on our schedules that somebody asks for our help, but we can't quite afford to stop and help that person? We're so, we're so keen on the way that we want to spend and invest our money. We have a clear plan with our savings that we can't stop to be interrupted by somebody who needs us to share our resources. 
We're so busy in our time. We're so busy with our plans. We're so amazed and grateful for our hashtag blessed lives and hashtag blessed families that we don't even look at the person who has lost their families and needs to be invited into your home. We don't have time or care to listen to the stranger, much less to love the stranger. But what if I told you this morning that Jesus is the stranger? What if I told you that the stranger we so often neglect in our everyday lives turns out to be the very God we say we love and follow? So I want to ask a few people. Can I ask Doris, Pedro, Ruben, if you'd come up? And we're going to read a passage. But because it's a long passage, I'm going to ask them to come up. And if you can, if there's more microphones. Okay. So I'll be the narrator. Then, Ruben, you can be Jesus. You have the beard for it, so. <laughs> Doris, you can be the righteous, and Pedro, you can be the wicked. Cool? Okay. Let's go for that. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and to go visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Awesome. Give these guys a round of applause. Thank you. Okay, so Jesus is speaking in Matthew, and he sets the scene to end of time itself. Jesus is sitting in his glorious throne, and the nations are gathered before him, and he proceeds to calling each person one by one. And as he separates people to his right and to his left, we begin to understand what is required of us to enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 34, we read Jesus speaking to those on his right those who are blessed and will spend eternity with their father. 
Now, this is no ordinary hospitality. This is no small gesture. Jesus is welcoming people into the place that has been prepared for them since the creation of the world. He is calling them to the fulfillment of their purpose to spend eternity with him and to worship him forever. And then he looks to those on his left. And quite honestly, he sounds harsh. And unlike the Jesus we sing to on a Sunday morning, much less unlike the Jesus we see on those paintings of the Last Supper, this is a harsh Jesus. You see, so many of us, we skip the parts in the Old Testament that talk about judgment and fire and hell. And when we get to the New Testament, we don't expect these words, much less coming from the lips of Jesus, because we cannot make these words compatible with a loving and merciful and forgiving Father. And yet, Scripture shows us that Jesus speaks more of fire and hell and judgment than any other person in Scripture. So what a paradox. What a seeming contradiction. The God of mercy and love preaching about judgment and hell. And so this story that Jesus tells us, it unpacks this paradox. And as we seek to understand Jesus' words, we will see that it is exactly because of God's commitment to mercy and compassion that he must separate people to his right and to his left. It's exactly because of his love for us that on judgment day, some will go to eternal punishment and others to eternal life. So in this story, we, we need to understand right from the beginning, we need to understand there is an importance in the distinguishing factor that separates people to those who are welcomed and those who are cursed. You see, in this passage, as Jesus welcomes people one by one, he isn't counting their church attendance. He's not seeing how well they sang. Some of us would be lost if it was about that. He's not looking at how many devotionals they completed on their Bible app. Jesus is looking at the way they welcome the stranger. The stranger who happens to be no stranger at all, but Jesus himself, the distinguishing factor, is our hospitality towards Jesus. And here we find another paradox. Jesus, who is the king of glory, Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, the word, Jesus, who has everything, identifies himself with the vulnerable, with the sick, with the needy, with the homeless, with a prisoner. This is definitely not what we expect of royalty. Jesus goes a step further and he explains that not only does he stand alongside those who are marginalized and sidelined by society, but he suffers as they suffer. And I think it was understanding this paradox that led Mother Teresa to live in the radical way that she lived. She says, our work calls us to see Jesus in everyone. He has told us that he is the hungry one. He is the thirsty one. He is the naked one. He is the one who is suffering. These are our treasures. They are Jesus. Each one is Jesus in distressing disguise. And so we learn that there is a powerful connection between our intimacy with Christ and the way that we treat the stranger. James reiterates Jesus' message when he writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is this to look after the orphans and widows in their distress. And so we need to look at the reactions. You see this, this passage that we read, it's basically a conversation that Jesus is having with the people that he calls. 
And it's interesting to me that the reaction of both these parties, the people who are on the left and on the right, both of them are surprised. So let's look at the first group, the one that Jesus calls and welcomes and, and calls to his right. Jesus commends them for feeding him when he was hungry, for visiting him in prison, for clothing him, for taking care of him when he was sick. And his followers are surprised and they ask, but Jesus, when did we do that? You see, true Christ followers, they don't show compassion as a way to earn points. True Christ followers, they don't live Christianity as a system of meritocracy where you're earning your way into heaven. True followers act in the overflow of the grace they have received in this passage. In this passage the actions of these followers came so naturally to them that they didn't even consider them worth remembering. But Jesus remembers. And before I go on, I need to make a note here that many have read this passage and completely missed the point. They've concluded that salvation comes by works. If you're a good person, then if you feed the hungry, if you clothe the homeless, if you're just a nice and a kind person to the people around you, then you can earn your way into eternity. But remember, Jesus is telling the story. And if salvation could be earned by works, then Jesus didn't have to suffer as he was about to suffer. He didn't have to be mocked as he was about to be mocked. He didn't have to die as he was about to die. We read in Bible study this week that if good works qualify us to eternity, then Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely pointless. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so Paul goes on in Ephesians and he explains what is the role of works then? What is the role of works in a Christian's life? He says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're not saved by good works but we're created to do good works. Paul explains that we are reconciled by God by what Jesus did on the cross. And that good works is the way that we honor his purpose in our lives. Good works is an outward expression of an inward transformation. James also says that faith that is not accompanied by actions is death. And so works is not the cause of our salvation, it's an indication of our salvation. Yesterday we celebrated Jamil's birthday and when you put candles on a cake for example, candles are an indication of her age and if she wanted to be a little younger and put less candles on her cake, it wouldn't have made her any younger unfortunately. Putting more candles on a cake doesn't make you any older either because the candles are not what matures a life. Candles are just an indication of your maturity. And in the same way, works are an indication of what God has already done inside of us. And so serving those around us does not earn us our salvation, it just expresses our salvation. The first group Jesus speaks to in today's passage was surprised when Jesus revealed himself as a stranger because their identity as Christ followers compelled them to help the poor the needy, and the broken. And by doing so, without even realizing it, they lived a life of worship 
to Jesus Christ himself. Now let's go on to the second group, the one on Jesus' left side. Those he says that they are cursed to eternal fire. They're also surprised. When Jesus tells them all that they didn't do, they had no idea that they had rejected Christ by turning a blind eye to the needs of others. If we go to an extreme and we look at the, at the life of Paul, who before he was Paul was named Saul, Jesus appears to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, Saul was zealous about the law, but he failed to recognize God outside the temple walls. Saul didn't recognize God. He didn't recognize Jesus and the very people that he was persecuting. And maybe you're not persecuting anyone. Maybe we're not even mistreating anyone. But when Jesus puts people to his left, he's not just condemning them for a moral violation. He's condemning them for their indifference. He's condemning them for their apathy. He's not making them guilty of something they did necessarily. He's making them guilty of the nothing that they did. And in the same way, so many of us, we fail to see Jesus in those around us, those asking for our help. Those we are too busy for, too cool for, too holy for. Sure, we worship God in church. We worship God in these four walls. But when we ask for our worship in our everyday lives, so often we ignore him because we fail to recognize him in the needs of those around us. And so here we begin to understand the paradox. The God of mercy and love is so dedicated to mercy that he must separate those who have not shown compassion from those who did. Tim Keller, he, he gives us a good example of this, and I know that many of you listen to his podcast, so maybe my message will be a little bit more legitimate now. But Tim Keller, he gives us an example of an older lady who is extremely wealthy, and she doesn't have any children, and so she has no heirs except this one nephew. And this one nephew of hers is, is extremely kind to her, He's so nice. He's the first one to open the door for her. He's the first one to give her rides whenever she needs to. He's always there for her every day. Every time she needs to call him, he's there. But she has kind of a hesitation, and she wants to know if this guy's for real, if his love for her is genuine, or if it's all just a facade. And so she decides to dress down and dress herself as a homeless person, and she goes and sits at the doorstep of her nephew. And lo and behold, when he opens the door and he sees this homeless person, he begins to curse her and threaten her. All of a sudden, she's realized his true character. And in the same way, God is so disappointed when we show him one face and we show another face to the stranger. And not only is God disappointed, but he is angry at the hypocrisy. He is angry at the lack of mercy and compassion at what could have been if we would have lived the life of genuine worship. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. His command is that we may welcome and love the stranger. The God of mercy expects us to show mercy. And it's not like we have an excuse, and the people on his left, it's not like they had an excuse that they didn't know that's what Christianity was all about. When Jesus speaks in Matthew, he's merely reiterating what has already been spoken all throughout Scripture. In Isaiah, God couldn't have been more clear. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is it not to share food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? 
When you see the naked, clothe them. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God's requirements of true worship are consistent throughout the Bible. I could name passage after passage. And still so many of us Christians are completely missing the point. We make Christianity about our spirituality, about the gifts of the Spirit that we can express and show to our Christian brothers. We make it about the type of music that we sing, if it's too loud, if it's too soft. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we sing to you? Didn't we serve in the worship team? Didn't we serve on the welcome team? Didn't we go to church every Thursday for a Bible study? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, I know that I've emphasized this before, but I feel it is so important because compassionate care for the needy was always supposed to be the way that the world would understand the essence of Christianity. Jesus, who is the king of glory, he himself identified himself with the vulnerable and those sidelined from society. The church is called to be the light that shines in the world. We are called to be game changers. We are called to create an impact in the society that is around us, in the communities that we're inserted to. And I hate to tell you, but coming to church on a Sunday morning is not going to create much impact. Having lunch in our, in our Christian circles is not going to wow the world, is not going to draw the world closer to Jesus. Doing good notes on a Bible study, yes, it's good for your Christian faith, it's good for your growth, but it is not going to impact those around you. It's not going to be a light that shines in the world. Christianity is so far more radical than that. Matthew 5, 46, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? We are called to go above and beyond in the way that we show hospitality to the stranger, to the broken, and even to our enemies. How different would our lives look if we began to see Jesus in others? How different would our cities look if Christians would understand that worship is not limited to the four walls of the church, but worship is when you care for people at your workplace. Worship is when you open your eyes to the people around you that are struggling in their marriage, that are struggling in their finances, that have no home to go to. Worship is opening our eyes to the needs of those around us. St. Basil of Caesarea was a bishop in the 4th century, and he wrote something quite radical. He says, the bread which you hold back actually belongs to the hungry. The garment which you lock in your chest belongs to the naked. The shoes which rot in your storehouses belong to the barefooted. And the money which you are hiding, it belongs to the needy. Thus, you do a great injustice to all those you could, whom you could succor. Now, I'm not preaching this message so that we all quit our jobs and tomorrow we're all joining a charity or everybody wants to work for the Lisbon Project or everybody just wants to get on a plane and go to India or go to Africa or someplace where people are in deep needs. I'm just asking that we open our eyes, that our worship may be true and proper, 
and not limited to an assumption of who we think God is or where we think God is. God is stranger. God is in your Bible study and he's in your workplace. God is in this church and God is in the streets. God is when your family gets together and God is in the shopping mall. God is stranger. I know that compassion is a gift and that it doesn't come naturally to all of us, much less to me. But I urge you and I to be more willing to interrupt our busy schedules to help those crying out for our help. I urge us to reprioritize our money, our resources, our time to help those who are sidelined, those who are neglected. Now I realize that this may sound super idealistic and, and I don't want to fool you because we work at the Lisbon Project with migrants and refugees, people who need help. And anytime you help people, anytime people are involved, it gets complicated. When you're helping people, there's, all, there's not always recognition. When you're helping people, you don't always see growth. You don't always get a thank you. It's hard, it's messy, it's tough. But we don't help people in Christianity. We don't serve people because they deserve to be served. We give because freely we have received and we have to renew our minds every day when our flesh says they don't deserve it, when our flesh says they're not capable, when our flesh says you could be doing something so much more worthwhile of your time, we have to renew our minds and remind us what Jesus did for us. I once was lost. I once was blind, but now I see you saved a wretch like me. When we are reminded of what Jesus did for us, we will be able through Christ to love those we don't want to love, to love those that don't deserve our love. See, Jesus loved in a radical way. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Christ died not only for those who would accept him, but here's something radical. Christ died for those who would reject him. And so what I'm asking is that we begin to start to open our eyes. We begin to start to be a little bit more open for the Holy Spirit to show us where does he want us to invest our time and our care? Who are the people in our lives where God wants to use us to reach with the love of Jesus? What is our surroundings? What are the gifts that God has given you? How does he want you to use your life to show love to the orphan, to the widow, to the neglected, to the ignored, to the lost? to people who maybe seem like they have it all together, but really inside they're completely broken and in need of Jesus. Who are the people around you that God wants you to reach with his love? Christine Paul writes, perhaps as we open that door more regularly, that door of compassion, that door of love to people that are unexpected, we will grow increasingly sensitive to the quiet knock of angels. And as I close, I want to ask Joday, I don't know if Joday is in the room. There she is. I want to ask Joday to come and pray for us. And I'd ask all of you to stand with me as the band comes up as well. And Joday is going to pray for us as a church, and she's going to pray for us as individuals. Pray for us as a church that we will be a city on a hill, that we will be a light that shines, but we will be a church that is not limited to these four walls that we will serve migrants and refugees through the Lisbon Project, but that we will serve the community in your workplaces, in your universities, 
in the grocery store near your house, the neighbors in your neighborhood, that we will be a light that shines as we open our hearts of compassion and start seeing those that Jesus sees because the stranger we have ignored might just be Jesus. We are called to serve the broken. Freely we have received. And so freely we give. And I'm going to ask Jode to pray for us as a church. Pray for us as individuals. God, open my eyes. Where can I serve? Who are the people? And I want you to think of those people. As she prays, I want you to think of those people. See their faces. See their names. God, help me. How do I help them? How can I clothe them? How can I feed them? How can I invite them into my home? How can I make them feel your love? How can I make them see what you did on the cross for them through my love for them, through my compassion for them? Christians are not meant to be seen as these superior, perfect beings. We're supposed to be seen on our knees as we serve and wash the feet of society. So think of those people, picture them, picture the organizations you want to partner with, picture the projects God has put on your heart, picture the families you want to reach out to. Let's pray that we can be a light that shines in the world, that others may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. that God has touched your heart with the message that he wants to tell us. If you would like to be updated with the things that are happening in our church, you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Riverside Lisbon. Thank you for listening.